Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And in a week when a study commissioned by Lord Nash uh, aimed at establishing how many politicians were genuine wealth creators, defined as people who created wealth through their work before entering Parliament, um, the report revealed that 75% of UK politicians and peers have never struck a business deal in their professional careers. (laughs) And the research is, um, is... suggesting that it might (laughs) have some bearing on why it's taken taken or taking so long to get to where we are today. Um, And it also said that the survey found that 650 members of parliament and nearly a thousand lords most hailed from the public sector and only a minority had any private sector experience and expertise, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, The high profile career of investment manager Neil Woodford is in in tatters. Um, He was sacked on Tuesday morning from his equity income fund, um, which is going to be wound up. And on a more local level, um, the news that Wrexham-based Tomlinson's Dairies has gone into administration uh, with uh, impact that is likely to be felt by both the staff and dairy farmers alike as 331 employees lose their jobs from the organisation. But this week, we decided that we'd look at something that um, cropped up in our conversations a couple of weeks ago which is GDP. Yeah we we talk about it a lot in fact it's probably the most talked about economic concept. But it's really really complicated. It's not. Well it it is to a (laughs) lay person so you give give me a snapshot as to what it actually is what's the definition of GDP? It measures the size of a country's economy. Yeah the the problem is that there are different ways to measure it. Mm. And uh, yeah, so th- there you can get lost down down all sorts of avenues trying to work it out. Um, but one of the best explanations I found was courtesy of the Bank of England, who then themselves referenced the Office for National Statistics, okay. which is the body um, which I refer to many, many times. These, this is the body that collects and collates all of the data that goes into GDP and it measures the value of goods and services produced in the UK to estimate the size and growth of the economy and the simplest way for me to explain it is by this equation GDP equals household spending plus investment plus government spending plus net exports where net exports is the difference between exports and imports okay does that help well does but it does but then I started as you do you start reading all sorts of things and I found a report by the World Economic Forum which actually um, started to pose more questions than it did answers. I do believe yes it it is a measure which you can find a lot of problems with um, not least because actually what is it measuring it what is it really telling you about the country but it is a measure And it's a measure which you can use to measure other countries. I would say the big issue is if you take it as the only measure. Yeah. If you take it as the only measure, then you're missing out an awful lot of other indicators as to how well a country is doing. Yeah, because and and I think that's it, isn't it? That if you apply the same measurement tool to all countries, 
you're comparing apples with apples and the information that you get is standardized. But if you start to look into it and I think we referred a couple of weeks ago to whether GDP is a measure of well-being. Um, which it's not. Which it's not. Uh, but it started in the 70s, the the term GDP. And um, in this report um, by the, um, what did I say it was, the World Economic Forum, um, they say GDP was born in the manufacturing age. It measures things you can drop on your foot. Yet in advanced economies such as the US, up to 80% of production is in the service industry um, and GDP doesn't do services. And then it goes on to talk about, um, it says, if I buy my own cheap airline ticket and check myself in online and pick up my own aisle seat, my convenience has gone up, but GDP has gone down. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about how, um, in fact, there's a quote from a GDP perspective, nuclear warheads do just as well as hospital beds or apple pie. So, yeah, it, so complex. in the event of war, um, GDP goes up. And it, so if that was the only measure of success that you were using, you would assume that the, the country is doing well because in war, the government spends a lot of money. Yeah. So GDP goes up. Yeah. So it, it's... It's got its limitations. And I think, actually, the fact that this article that I've read was on the Bank of England's website, it was actually yeah. quite good. Yeah, yeah. It's saying, you know, it's not the whole story as to how well an economy is doing. It also puts the emphasis on growth as well. And there's a lot of talk at the moment about how much further can you grow. Growth has come from, in the last few years, the commoditization of a lot of things that perhaps wouldn't have been commodities. But it, it also doesn't tell you anything about equality or how evenly income is split across the population. You could have massive growth. Your, your GDP could be growing, but it could mean that just one segment is getting very rich while everybody else is becoming worse off. Um, it also doesn't reflect changes in the size of population. So if, say, in the UK, the GDP ro rose by 2% next year, but the population grew by 4%, then actual income per person would have fallen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So I think, I think the message that I take from it is that when somebody mentions GDP, it, you almost need to ask a little bit yeah. more information. You can't just accept it on face value. Because I think that's the same with any statistic, isn't, yeah. isn't it? Any bit of data like that, if you just view it in isolation, it's of limited value. And, and the danger is with people who aren't used to looking at this sort of information. And you just told us about the background of a lot of politicians. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and looking at a richer set of data, it can give you a really skewed view of how successful you are. I did find um, a reference to another measure of well-being. Uh, had you heard of the Happy Planet Index? Uh, yes, uh, yeah. Sadly, I clicked on the links to it and, and the website doesn't appear to be live at the moment, whether it was just a problem I had. But I, I drilled down a little bit further and it was um, it's the initiative of an organisation called the New Economic Foundation. What, what did you like about that? Well, um, I, I thought what I liked about it, the website did load for me. Um, there's actually a TED talk. I haven't watched it, but I am going to watch it. Oh, right. It. OK, I'll um, try again. Um, by Nick Marks called the Happy Planet Index. He's the guy who created this whole idea. Um, and it is 
it is showing that it is possible to live good lives without costing the earth, i.e. costing the, you know, the planet. Um, and it, it's an interesting measure because as we talk more and more about uh, sustainability and the environment, it's not just fine. It can't just be financial. There needs to be yeah. this this balance. Well, I like the motto of the New Economics Foundation. It's a it's a think tank which promotes social, economic, and environmental justice. But their motto is economics as if people and the planet mattered. And yeah, and and the Happy Planet Index. It looks at well being, life expectancy, uh, inequality of outcomes. So looking at. Um, how people how happy people feel based on the life expectancy within that um with that within that country and then the ecological footprint so it's these other strands and maybe we'll get to a point where gdp and the happy planet index can be combined in some way so you get a true feeling of the well-being factor as well as the financial you're listening to the business community on calon fm in other news, uh, me and Heather have been looking around for news items that have caught our eye and this one popped right out at me. Um, it's a new study from GFK Consumer Life and they asked 37,000 people in 31 different markets in 25 countries about their feelings on technology. And one of the key findings is that Generation Z women are less likely than millennial women to want to be reachable at all times. And the... Um, Quote in this article says they might be suffering from tech fatigue. More than 60% of Generation Z women reported that they have difficulty taking even a short break from technology, but they don't want to be reachable at all times. That sounds like a bit of a crisis to me. They can't let go of the technology, but they don't want to be reachable. Sound, sounds a little bit difficult. Um, now, let me just define what they, they say Generation Z is. Um, the oldest members of Generation Z are currently 21 years old. So we're looking at 21 and younger. And what you, you would find is that people who are 21 years and younger probably won't remember a time, well, definitely won't remember a time when they weren't digitally connected. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that, that is just life but then they're feeling the pressure of it because maybe they don't want to be digitally connected. Something for businesses to bear in mind, tech fatigue. If you're going right down the tech route and expecting everybody to love it, you might find that the next generation starts to kick back. And um, Generation Z women are said to be overwhelmingly pessimistic about the impact of technology on society, with only 34% saying they were optimistic, which is 15% points lower than women as a whole so the younger generation are, are increasingly exposed to the darker sides of technology i guess and their pessimism comes from concerns about safety and security worried about their personal information getting into the wrong hands and also um, internet-based harassment and also non-consensual pornography and deep fakes so that was the first article that i found and i thought Really important one to note. Maybe the you know the Generation Z women and maybe the men are catching up as well. I don't know. The report didn't um, refer to the men that they questioned. Maybe they'll just start to put their phones down, walk away. Because you can put do not disturb on, can't you? Which would make you not contactable. Yeah. 
Um, and but, but the expectation if they've grown up being contactable, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Where have you been? Make, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas well, you know, people from our generation and older. It's a relatively new thing, isn't mm. it, to be permanently contactable? And I still know some people who don't have a mobile phone. Yeah, which is which is really weird. Um, but the, the flip side, I mean, it's, <laughs> not, it, not judging or anything. No, no, but it is. It's like yeah. when I was a kid, people who didn't have a TV. It's like what you actually so, haven't. So got what I'm television? saying that difficulty for the Gen Z women is they'll be thought of as really weird. Yeah. if they're not contactable. Yeah, yeah. It's un- yeah, unusual. That said, Tracy has forgotten to bring her mobile phone out with her today. And <laughs> she, whilst she doesn't feel the need to be contactable, um, you, it, you do feel a bit like, oh. Yeah, I, I, I was just about to walk into the studio and thought, have I got time to nip back and get my phone? Clearly I didn't. Yeah. But I, I felt the urge, oh, what if, what yeah, if, this, what if, what if I need that? it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so a couple of news items that caught my eye. One is um, German energy firm E.ON is cutting between five and 600 jobs from its UK workforce. Um, They employ 9,000 people here in the UK. Uh, But I think it's the start of um, a a bit of a, a trend in terms of the costs associated, you know, fuel costs and how the competitive market is going to start to impact impact even on these big boys. You know, E.ON is is a massive organisation. So I think that's something to watch out for. Um, But then I came across an article that I thought it was in Forbes, Forbes Women, um, and it was ways to attract more clients to your business that you may have overlooked. And as a a, a small business owner, uh, I thought, okay, I'll check this out and see what they're sharing. Um, and there are a few things. Optimize your website. You could say that's bleeding obvious, but actually that's something that I know is quite time consuming and something that I could be better at, should be better at. Um, do I have the time to do it? No. Do I have the true expertise to do it? Probably not. Should I be paying somebody else to do it? There's a fine line. It's a little bit like snake oil. You know, there's there's been a lot of bad press around what is this SEO stuff. So, but it's something that perhaps needs some attention and and a mental note for myself. Reach out to past clients. We all know that repeat business is easier to come by than new business. Uh, So how good are you at actually going back and saying, hello, remember me? Remember us? We did a good job for you before. Um, We're still here. Reminding people that you're still trading. Um, host a workshop for a local chamber of commerce or a community uh, working space and, you know, give something to like, like a try before you buy. Publish on LinkedIn, start writing articles, not just sharing articles on LinkedIn, but actually being the person who who writes them and generates them. And set yourself up as experts to reporters, offer to be a talking head, offer to give a viewpoint. Uh, and finally, be active in professional associations. Make sure that you know what's going on with your peer group um, so that you're not on the back foot at any time. So that's an article in Forbes. Um, I'll put a link to that along with um, the other things that we've referred to on our website, which is the business.community. Tracy, what else have you got? Well, I don't want us to be accused of only ever looking in the local press because I've gone all the way to San Francisco for this no next word. article. You literally went to San Francisco. Yeah, I wish. I read the uh, San Francisco Examiner online. Right. Um, and there was an, this has caught my eye because um, San Francisco is creating an office of emerging technologies. 
where tech companies have to pitch their services to the city so that they will no longer be taken by surprise and have to address impacts of said tech business. So apparently, in recent years, San Francisco has struggled to keep up with the tech companies and their new gadgets, which often exploit grey areas in the law and such things as robots using um, pavements. Although, obviously, in the San Francisco Examiner, they said sidewalks. Um, (laughs) So these robots using pavements to make overnight deliveries or the explosion of rentable e-scooters over cell phones. So I just thought that was really interesting that San Francisco has recognised that the the city infrastructure and bylaws can't keep up with the pace of development of the technology. And so now if you want to introduce your technology into public spaces in the city, you have to go through this Office office of Emerging Technology. Imagine robots on the pavement. That's a whole... That is so space age. And rentable e-scooters. Yeah, I'm loving it. I, I actually feel like we should make a business trip to San Francisco. I agree. Okay. And then finally, um, an article um, from CIPD. They've, um, they're talking about um, recently published research by an organisation called Salary Finance. And this research is available to download free of charge from salaryfinance.com. And it's about Employer's Guide to Financial Wellbeing. It's how organisations can help their workers with money worries and that doesn't just mean paying them more Um, and it's important for businesses to be able to help their employees with their financial well-being um, because people are worrying about money more than any other area of their life according to this research 36% of UK employees are worrying about money and that's the ones that have admitted to it and they're more worried about money than their career their health and their relationships And these are people who are in work. Yep. Yep. And then obviously the knock-on effect is absenteeism, productivity and retention. And obviously mental health, Mm. so the impact on that. And the report goes on to say that it's not just about pay. No matter what level of, of earnings you're at, you can have financial worries. So even if you're earning 100K, you can still have the same level of financial worries as someone who's earning minimum wage just because it scales up the worries become different so they still need to be addressed and this report and and this organisation are encouraging organisations to start to listen and to help and to actually build on the trust that employees have got in their employer to help them with their financial well-being. So as Heather said before, the links to all of the things that we've discussed and if you want to download that report, that will be available in our blog with the podcast of this show at our website, which is thebusiness.community. In the discovery section this week, I've found... A, a TED talk and a video yeah. uh, that uh, that come together to teach us a really valuable lesson about leadership. Um, a guy called Derek, Derek Sivers wrote the article called First Follower, Leadership Lessons from a Dancing Guy. And uh, basically the video itself is called How to Start a Movement. And you may have seen this before, but I think it's worth revisiting. Essentially, it's it's a rock concert 
or a festival and on this hillside there's a guy just in a pair of shorts and he starts dancing he's having an amazing time he's he's loving it um and everybody else is just sort of sat around chilling and he's the lone dancer and then a guy comes over and starts dancing with him and this guy is the first follower so he spotted somebody just you know a crazy guy dancing and decides to to join in and the lone crazy guy embraces the fact that he's there and they just dance together so now it's just the two of them and they're you know they're 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 cool together and then the first follower calls in other people so then the second follower comes in and that is the point at which this is the start of a crowd because then people allow themselves to become attracted and join in because now, well, there's three of them doing it, so it can't be that crazy an idea. And it's a fantastic video to watch uh, and it's a fantastic story. And we've all come across people who, who are doing things and so often we sit on the sideline and think, that looks like great fun, but I don't want to be the first one to join in or I don't want to be the first one to put my hands up and ask a question or I don't want to be the first one that says that's a brilliant idea why don't we move it forward Uh, but once that happens then the person who started dancing becomes the leader and uh, it's well worth watching it's only three minutes of your life which you know you won't regret sharing because by the end of the video The whole hillside is covered in people and they're all dancing and they're all running to get involved. They're all attracted. Um, And so, so, so that's the leadership message. But the other thing that I take from it is that sometimes... It might be scary. I mean, I, I don't... He probably had had some mind-altering substances of some sort or, <laughs> or you know, alcohol or something. However, having the guts to be the first person to to stand there and just do your thing and hope and trust that people will come and join in is a fantastic thing. But apart from that, sometimes people join in. You don't realise you're, you don't realise you're doing something amazing, but it attracts people. And sometimes we need to recognise that. So I'm going to share it um, on, on our website, but it's well worth watching. And it, it, it reminds us that, yeah, okay. Sometimes our job is to be the leader. Sometimes our job is to be the first follower. Yeah, which can sometimes take which, more bravery. Absolutely, absolutely. You've got to stand up there and say, yeah. Exactly, yeah, I'm going to go with that. So, um, so yeah, that's what I that's what I discovered this week. What, what have you got, Tracy? Okay, I've got a book, and this one is called Performing As You, How to Have an Authentic Impact in Every Role You Play. It's by a lady called Diana Theodores, and she's an international performance coach and director of Theatre for Business. And apparently, according to her, her bio, she's helped hundreds of executives worldwide to connect with their authentic voice and presence and to transform their personal performance for greater influence, engagement and fulfilment. So as you can tell, she's come from a theatre background and uh, she's using that to actually help people to to get a sense of authenticity in what they're doing. She refers to herself as a coach in your pocket and that's the style of the book. And I, I sort of I was captured by um, one of the initial um, um, paragraphs in the book. It says, imagine if you in your workplace and the you in your life outside those doors got together and became soulmates. Imagine that life work was a real world, real word and it meant the connection between your work life and your outside life. 
Now, she's talking about being more authentic, but not necessarily being exactly the same person in every situation. Because obviously the assumption is that authentic is just being the same yeah, and everything. You, yeah. And so it, it, don't don't be worried that she's saying that you've got to go into work in your pajamas because that's the authentic you. Um, she talks about <laughs> that is the authentic me. <laughs> she, she talks very much about looking at you know where you are in your environment and and using your your presence and your engagement in the environment that's appropriate. Using your wardrobe correctly. As, as you do, Heather, I can always tell when you've been networking, there's a certain style <laughs> to you. That, that And it, it pops, doesn't it? The style that you go for is very much, this is how I want to come across um, in, in that environment. And she talks um, to women, but she says, why am I talking to women in particular? And I thought I would explain this. Um, she says, um, being and bringing more of ourselves through the door is a challenge a quest and a joy for both men and women. And everything in this book will most certainly resonate with men too. However, she says she's sort of talking as if she's talking to a woman, but not excluding men. It's just that um, she's talking from the point of view that she understands as a woman. As a woman, yeah. yeah. Um, so she talks about... Um, your body being your environment so you have to connect with yourself before you can expect to connect with the outside world and she uses a lot of um, techniques that she shares as to how you can center yourself before you put yourself into that environment um, and how to use your energy and some lovely little exercises as well that I joined in particularly in chapter two reawaken the girl and and it's a the girl inside you and one of the exercises is to go through a childhood photo album and have a look through and reacquaint yourself with your girlhood or if you're a gentleman um your your, your childhood yes. <laughs> yes. yes your boyhood yes um she talks about stoking that fire and playing as well and she does make a reference that made me smile about the. she said you know all of those um ice-breaking exercises you do. So that is what they're for, they're, they're to get you to override your analysis thinking and get you to to think about, you know, to outside the box from where you normally are. She, said, she, she knows they're excruciating to some people, but the purpose is to get you to, to actually start to think in a different way. Um, she talks about different personas that you can play. So you are your own list of characters. There are a number of different characters. And she then talks about, we, we've talked about storytelling before. Yeah. Um, and she says that your life story is your best asset. Because it's unique to yeah, you. And your stories you. reveal the humanity behind your job title. And that's when you begin to step into your authentic presence. So you bring the ordinary, the epic, the dark and the light experiences in because there are important lessons and compelling insights and powerful messages. So I love the book. I really I have not got to the end of it yet. But if the rest of the chapters that I've already gone through are, are anything like the beginning ones, there's. There's little snippets in there that you can take away and go, yes, I, I can hold on to that one for today. And you don't necessarily have to read the book all in one go. But just for the exercises alone, just, re you know, being reminded that you have to stand up straight and how you say your name and saying thank you to people if they give you a compliment. That it's something that I, I learned 
many years ago when I'm reading similar books and you just take away perhaps a couple of things from the book. Um, but this um, little bit of advice at the end of chapter four, she says, the next time someone gives you the gift of a compliment, make their day and just say thank you. Mm. No other word is needed. And I practiced that a long time ago, particularly if they say, um, oh, I like that dress. If you immediately back it back, bat it back and go, I like yours too. Yeah. The, the power of that compliment has been lost. It's almost as if you've thrown the gift back in their face. And if you say, oh, this old thing, then you're, then you're dismissing their, their opinion of yeah. something. And there was one little bit that I want to share that was about presentations. There's a, a big chapter on presentations and, and about communication being a physical act. And it says, um, it's a Mae West quote, I speak two languages, body and English. And she talks about all of these spaces as being performance spaces, including the boardroom. The boardroom table is a stage. You just happen to be sitting down. And she she talks about the sort of when you're getting up and you're going to do a presentation, that your performance starts from where you're sitting. So don't you know shuffle to the front and look apologetic. Start talking. As, you, as you're walking up to the front, keep on talking. And then when you've finished, don't just shuffle off apologetically. Take in the applause, you know, be appreciative, stand there in thoughtful silence, say thank you. And she says that's not the end of your communication with them. This is where the conversations can truly begin. That. that's sort of a little gist of the book and you can probably see why I like it I love books about presentation skills and, and actually not, not just presenting as in standing up in front of a PowerPoint pre uh, presentation but presenting yourself in all sorts mm. of environments and, and for this I, I thank Diana Theodores because it's a, a great little book it's available on Amazon Unlimited at the moment but even I think I feel I need it as a hard copy I'm feeling yeah. that yes feeling like I need the little book to yeah. be underlining things and yeah. and putting post-it notes in but Performing As You by Diana Theodore is highly recommended by me this week our business person that we're profiling is uh, MBE hairstylist to the stars and British celebrity hairdresser. Um, born in 1949 in Paisley, we're talking about Trevor Sorby. Uh, mo most of us will have seen Trevor Sorby hair products in supermarkets and chemists around the country. Um, and we thought that it would be interesting to have a look at how he became that household name. And uh, essentially, he started... Uh, hairdressing. He opened his own barber shop um, in North London in 1969 when he was 20, having been cutting hair as an apprentice to his father, uh, who ran um, a hair a, a barber's. Uh, and then from there, he got a job with Vidal Sassoon, um, went to work at Tony and Guy and John Frieda, the names of whom he sits alongside on the shelves is yeah. there must, now yeah it must i mean that must have been quite amazing um he opened his first proper salon in stamford street in london uh, in 1977 1979 in covent garden and then brighton in 2004 
Uh, he cut the, uh, did the hair for Torvalin Dean in their Skating on Ice tour. And he was famous for creating the wedge haircut. I think we've all had a wedge haircut at some yes. point in time. Of a certain age, anyway. And also, <laughs> and also scrunch drying. You know, that sort of messy way of drying your hair yeah. where you didn't don't use a brush and sometimes it works really well and sometimes it just looks like you've been dragged through a hedge backwards <laughs> um but he's quite a difficult man to find out anything about uh, although he is very famous what did you find tracy well um an article in the times uh, led me to um Desert Island Discs. We seem to be listening to that a lot recently. They, they come up with some real interesting business people. Um, and he he talks on there about um, how um, a tabloid scandal drove him to attempt suicide. And also of great interest to me is his charity, My New Hair. One of the things that did slightly put me off is his book of choice on Desert Island Discs was all of Jeremy Clarkson's books. But he did re- redeem himself by taking a luxury of a bottle of wine. Maybe he was <laughs> going to use them to keep his fire stoked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to any uh, uh, Sorry, Jeremy, Jer- Jeremy Clarkson, Clarkson fans. fans. We've just written off a yeah. whole yeah. swathe of people. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the other thing I found was um, company's house visit brought no appointments, no current appointments for Trevor Sorby. And that is because, I understand, he's devoting all of his time to his charity, My New Hair. Um, and there's a great article in the Portsmouth local paper. Obviously, I just nipped down to Portsmouth, picked up the paper. Um, and they, they talk about his charity awful lot in there. And it, it's a, it sounds like an amazing charity. What, what he does, if you've not heard of My New Hair before, is he um, customises wigs for people who've lost their hair um, largely through cancer treatment. And this was set up in 2006 in memory of his sister-in-law who lost her hair through cancer treatment. She'd got a wig um, and it just looked like a wig, he says, and he customised it to make it look more natural. And at that point, she burst into tears of joy. And he knew then that he was going to stop cutting hair and start cutting wigs, which is an amazing story. And um, since then, he's trained other stylists, more than 600 stylists to cut wigs. And uh, he doesn't provide the wigs. He cuts the wigs. And he says it's an emotional journey. And wig cutting is not for every hairdresser, but clearly he's found something that he says he doesn't get paid for. He doesn't charge a penny for his services. His payment is thank you cards. That's the thing for me that stood out more than anything. This guy, celebrity hairdresser, any number of celebrity names he could drop. And what he's doing at the moment is working for ordinary people for free to help them to feel better about the wig that they're wearing. And, yeah, the charity is the thing. And, and, and of course, we'd all love to be able to do that type of thing. Obviously, he has some personal wealth that he has acquired through his hairdressing career to enable him to be able... And hair products, consumer hair products. And products, yes. Yeah, because um, yeah, cause that's 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 going to be big business for him and clearly is big business for him. Um, yeah, I, I, I found the, uh, the charity um, really interesting. There's an interview with him on, uh, if you prefer to watch a video, um, there's a video on infringe.com, which is a hairdressing website, um, but it's in conversation with Trevor Sorby. Um, so you can find out a bit more about how, how he got to where he is um, and, and what makes him tick. 
but it did did you get any quotes i didn't um but i did, i did get a little interview um with this is money where where they ask um famous business people standard questions and there's a couple that stood out for me uh, one was how much is was your first wage packet and it was uh, £2.12 shillings. And uh, he was working, this is when he was working for his father at his barber's in Ilford. And um, he's been working as a hairdresser ever since. So uh, clearly he's earning more than £2.12 shillings mm. a week. Um, how much did you pay for your first home? Um, he bought a house for £40,000 right next to the platform, to platform one of Twickenham Railway Station. It was a two-bedroom terrace house and his first divorce cost him the house. His best financial move was setting up in business and his worst move was setting up in business in Covent Garden in 1979 for which he put his house on the line and he said there, never again have I allowed myself to be under such financial pressure which is really good advice. Yeah, 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 sound advice indeed. Um, And I think that, you know, for any hairdressers listening, I think sometimes we underestimate just it's blooming hard work. You know, it's it's one of those things where to be a good hairdresser, you know, you've got to be there cutting the hair and you can employ people, but they're going to want you. And so, you know, training your staff to be as good as, you know, does the Queen want her hair done by somebody who works for Trevor Sorby? No, she wants her hair done by Trevor Sorby. So I think it's it's a really interesting business model and it's blooming hard work, I'm sure. I'm sure. I have a quote which um, he says, even though I run my business, I'll still sweep the floor in the shop, wash hair, make coffee and help clients put their coats on. I try to lead by example. Good stuff. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Next week, Heather and myself will be on our jollies. We're going to the Festival of Enterprise. That's right, isn't it? Um, So we're recording a show for you. So we will still be here, still tune in at 12 noon next Thursday. And uh, we'll share all of the exciting news from the Festival of Enterprise with you the week after. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. Business.